tend to float back and forth between sort of politics and pop culture. Those seem to be our two, and sort of like uh, academic stuff, you know, like inside baseball kind of stuff. It seems like we haven't done pop culture in a while, so we could do pop culture if we can think of something going on. Uh, uh, yeah, I know. We don't want to talk about that, though. I was. Yeah, we do. Let's let's talk about it. Let's, let's, uh... I mean, it is fascinating, but the thing is, it's. Uh, I mean, it's been going on for several weeks now, so people are really fed up with it. I think. Can we add anything original to the discussion? Do we ever add anything original to any of these discussions? Okay, can we have fun talking about it for the next <laughs> twenty minutes, or however long we want to devote, or five minutes, or two? You turn into a robot. I mean, it is it is kind of fascinating. I mean, I think uh, I don't know. I mean, it probably says something significant about celebrity uh, culture and the way we 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 view celebrities and stuff in our in our culture. Maybe I don't know. Is that boring or? Well, there you go. I don't know. What do you what do you, what do you think? I think I mean here's my here's my take on Charlie Sheen. Here's why this is such a depressing event. Is that? I mean, have you ever watched Two and a Half Men? Either of you on purpose? I mean, like against your will? I've been maybe? subjected to it. Did our charges go away? I, I was just going to ask you that. I think he might have. Well, he'll come back. Here's the thing about Charlie Sheen: is that Two and a Half Men? To, I mean, I don't think it's a particularly clever show. I think they had like a half a season's worth of a pl- worth of a, of a premise, and then it just got old. And the jokes are just. You know, it's just, it's a dead show. But anyway, it's apparently quite popular. Oh, it's a crappy show. It's apparently quite popular. And the humor of it all rests on this tension between Charlie, the, the good guy at, at heart, right? You know, Charlie on, on the show. Not Charlie Sheen necessarily, but Charlie on the show. He's a good guy. He's, you know, but, but he's sort of kind of aloof and kind of a womanizer, but in a very lighthearted, fun kind of way. And the whole, like, sure. that's, that's like, the humor in the show, is that he says and does ridiculous things, but he always sort of redeems himself at the end. You know, or we at least sort of see the dark side of his um, freewheeling ways. The problem is that in real life, when you know that the, the actor behind that, the act is the good guy part, not the, you know, crazy, you know, like, uh, alcoholic womanizer, woman beater Charlie. Like, when you realize that the act is not the craziness, but the act is the nice guy part, that just really deflates the whole illusion of the show. Yeah, well, I mean, I think part of their problem was the show really wanted to have it two ways. And I mean, like, the whole character was, like, clearly a, a thin lampooning of who Charlie Sheen was. But, like, everybody just sort of knew Charlie Sheen in reality was kind of this drug-using, womanizing, not very good guy, but he at least kept it under wraps enough that it was funny on the show. But when it became this public, then, well, exactly what you said, right? Then it's not cutesy anymore. Yeah. Um, But Hey, am I back? Yeah, you're back. I am back. That was very nice. That was a seamless in and out on your part. Usually we have to stop recording and everything. I don't know what happened. Like, I was just trying to connect again, and all of a sudden I heard Jesse's voice, and then I saw that uh, I was reconnected. That it's, happens it's a lot. Weird. I hear Jesse's voice a lot. <laughs> I, I like to think any time you're in trouble, if you <laughs> think hard enough, you will hear my calming presence. There's something about womanizing and, and being funny. And well, not, like, oh. and, and here's the thing, actually, and this is another point that I think we should talk about. 
not just womanizing. It's not just that he's like a swinger. It's that he has a history of like violence towards women. You know, like scary, messed up crap. Yeah. Not just like he sleeps around. Like, uh, you know, stuff that. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm not. Many people were making have been making these comparisons over the last few weeks between like Lindsay Lohan, right? Who's like young, has made a few mistakes, does stupid things, but you know, nonviolent stupid things at least, right? For the most part. And Charlie Sheen not only continually gets, you know, second breaks or, you know, you know, a second, second, third, fourth, fifth chance, but like people don't even really talk about how bad, like somehow threatening his ex-wife with a knife or whatever, um, gets categorized as womanizing. Allegedly. Yeah. It gets categorized as womanizing as opposed to like being a dangerous, uh, sociopath. Well, the dude's bipolar, I think. I mean, I think that's the kind of consensus, right? Like, See, um, I don't know. I always get. I, I mean, I've heard about like they had. Some, they've had like a you know expert psychiatrists on various uh, like ABC talk shows and stuff, mm-hmm. like trying to diagnose him, and that that always drives me crazy when they do that. For one thing, so I don't know. Maybe yeah. Maybe I mean, I, I agree. I, I dislike when that stuff happens as well, but I do have to say that it does seem like Sheen's rants resemble hypermania or you know like somebody who's fluctuating from up and down and and doing erratic stuff like threatening people with knives although misogynist and and bad and not good it is kind of some kind of classic bipolar behavior where you're just kind of being very impulsive i almost wonder though if this i wonder how much of this is like honestly him being kind of crazy or like how much of it is a, a calculated publicity thing yeah. that got away from him. Is this because another I've been one of those? Watching some of the clips. Well, I was gonna say, yeah. like, I was watching clips of the thing on, when he was on Twenty Twenty, and, and I think it was that one. And he would just say some like really outrageous thing, and then he would kind of like smirk to himself and be like, "Too much," you know, or like kind of thing where like he clearly recognized he was being like ridiculous and outlandish. And I, I kind of wonder if it wasn't, if it didn't at least start as some sort of self-aware joke and maybe just kind of get away from him. Well, you know, the interesting thing about bipolar, and I think this is going to be maybe piss off some people, but like some people don't like to, I mean, they know they're bipolar, but they don't want to be medicated because they know what it, it takes away that kind of mania feel. And I don't know, having worked with some bipolar people, there's also like this, I, this whole like, re, um, thing against the label and um they they almost play up some like i've had i've been in situations where people play up the fact that they're on a on a kind of manic state and they try to like act crazy because they think you're they're fulfilling your stereotype they're like trying to make fun of you but the craziness kind of the make mock craziness kind of gets away from them like oh no you're crazy because you're trying to act like you're crazy by doing a b and c um I don't know if you understand what I'm trying to say, but like there's this – you're trying to portray yourself in this kind of characterizing yourself as like, oh, look, I'm really crazy. Yeah. And, but the actual thing that you're doing is actually crazy. You know, like, well, that makes uh, sense. Like everyone – I mean if you're a teacher, you've, you've had this. Like the, this, the hyper crazy student in class who sort of plays up the role and before you know it, it sort of snowballs and they really are an out-of-control crazy distraction. Of a student. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they're and it's totally and it's you get the sense that it's an act for them, but after a while it stops becoming an act because they don't have a choice. They have to keep acting that way, you know. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, I've worked with this kid once where he like climbed up the roof and he, you know, being kind of impulsive and he's like, oh, I'm so crazy. I'm so, I'm going to go kill myself. I'm going to do this. You know, and he was like acting this way. And then you're like, wait a second, he can actually hurt himself. Like not really uh, being kind of super aware of it. Like I know you're trying to act crazy, but uh, that is a crazy act that you're actually performing. And so sometimes when I'm listening to Charlie Sheen, it kind of reminds me of that. It's like, oh, he thinks that this is a publicity spot. You know, stunt in a way. He's going on the internet. And he's like, I'm playing it up, and my quotes are being taken out of context and, and made into sheenisms or whatever. And that's kind of cool. And I, I'm controlling it. I have total control of it. And and probably he probably doesn't actually. He probably can't actually uh, rein it in. He just kind of keeps going. I mean, I don't know. It, it's kind of sad yeah, in I, a way. Go ahead, Jesse. That was the point I was trying to get. I think he kind of made. A- like Faustian bargain with being the crazy guy and like because I mean you know his ridiculous quotes are already like on t-shirts and they're like internet memes and like you know all of these websites and news shows just devoted to him but like you said I mean once you start that then like no one's interested in him as like a normal human being or especially not as like an actor in a sitcom anymore like now he's kind of made his bed in that like he has to be the hyper crazy guy or then there's like there's absolutely no interest in him yeah yeah i'm sure like he in his mind he thinks that there's going to be a switch down the road where he's like oh i'm going to be the redeemed rehabilitated charlie or maybe i'll do this back and forth for a while or something like that um but he'll i don't think he'll ever reach the rehabilitated um redeemed charlie without going to be some kind of therapy but that's just my two cents. Why is it such big news, though? I mean, do people just like watching a train wreck, or yeah, yeah, I think they do. I mean, <laughs> unfortunately, I mean, I have to say, I I was enjoy watching the first episode. I mean, the uh, I haven't never seen the show, but I did see the interviews on TV, and you know, the guy is completely narcissistic and um, you know, grandiose statements about his powers, and you know, it's like, wow, this is how. TV stars really think of themselves? You know, I know he plays this character on the TV show, supposedly. Go ahead. The one of the, it was, at first, that was one of the kind of fun things about it, though, I think, because, like, I mean, he's one of the few, like, because celebrities have a certain public face they're required to adopt, right? Like, you know, a very basic Goffman thing, but he's, you know, every once in a while, people like him just come out and say, like, yeah, I'm incredibly wealthy, so I get to have sex with a lot of women and do a lot of drugs, and there are basically no consequences for me. Um, and granted, he's taking it ridiculously far, but at first it was kind of, I mean, almost refreshing to just like hear a guy like him come out and admit it and just be like, I live a consequence-free lifestyle because I'm super rich, and so there aren't consequences for me, you know? Well, you know, this is something that... Um kind of always fascinates me about our obsession with celebrities too is that you know like we live in a mass society with a mass culture that we all share and you know you can imagine in in a previous era where you didn't have that you know you know people gossip and people talk about their neighbors and the guy you know down the street or the person next door and people like to gossip about you know things that they have in common, right? Everyone knows those people because everyone knows everyone, and, and that's how it is. Now, though, no one knows anyone. You know, like, uh, mo- a lot of us don't even know our neighbors at all. You know, we go to work, maybe. We know our coworkers, kind of, but we know them as coworkers, maybe. And, you know, we go home and we watch TV. So the guy down the street that everyone knows 
is not down the street, but it's Charlie Sheen. You know, like, he's the crazy yeah. uncle that yeah. everyone talks about. So that's his role in the big celebrity family that is our shared um, <laughs> point of reference as a culture. He's the crazy uncle. You know, that's what he does. And it's just, uh, I mean, you know, to me that just, uh, that's, that's the dynamic at work. It's fascinating. Like, the, pe- the people we have in common, we don't actually know at all, you know. Yeah, it's interesting, though, too, because usually when we define somebody who's crazy, like the whole kind of labeling theory thing, it supposes that it's somebody who doesn't have the power to reject the kind of sanctions that we're putting, you know, on him. Or it's usually somebody who's marginalized. Oh, it's somebody who's acting a little bit deviant, and so we call them crazy because they can't, you know, repel our labeling. But here's a situation where... Hello? Did you just, uh, Arturo? God, it's like he's gonna hear your voice pretty soon, and it'll all be okay. My son, <laughs> hear me and be calm. Arturo, uh, use you, the force. You know, so I, one of the other things, though, that I think is actually really interesting about this, is there's also this whole angle that isn't talked about as much, is sort of the um, kind of drug scare angle of it, because. I mean, a lot has been made of his drug abuse, and certainly if the stories are true of, you know, consuming a suitcase full of cocaine over the span of a weekend or something, like, obviously that's significant drug use. Um, But there was notably, in one of these interviews, you know, several of the interviews he claimed he had willed himself clean and he was not using drugs anymore, and he took a drug test or two and did indeed come up clean. Um and it, but it's it, it's interesting to to sort of look at how people reacted to that and how people said that like well sure okay apparently he stopped using drugs for this moment but he's only doing that to prove this point and certainly he'll be back to using and blah blah, blah. And I'm certainly no drug treatment counselor but it's it's a very sort of interesting microcosm of our sort of fears and moral panics surrounding drug use and things of that nature. Well, it's especially complicated because it's mixed in with mental illness. I mean, with him, you know, clearly it's not just about drugs, but, you know, um, the effects that those drugs have on on sort of his, you know, being bipolar or whatever, whatever he is, clearly something's not, you know, right. (laughs) So Yeah, I mean, ultimately it's kind of like the sort of self-selection side, though, of the potential harms of drugs because... You know, it's probably not the drug. Oh, did I lose you too? So it's probably this type of behavior is also leading to drugs. I'm here. You're here? You cut out for me for a minute. Oh, well, sorry. That's I was funny. making a really brilliant point. I, I was just sad I was all alone for a minute. You know. Oh, John, you're never alone as long as you have hope. <laughs> well, I was about to just put on your recording. Um, your your rendition of Holy Dive. Can I can I cut a clip of that in to the episode because I think it's hilarious. You one hundred percent can. You can hide in the dark till you see the light. Oh, we will pray it's all right. Gotta get away. I, 
I've been working on more of a honky tonk version of it too, but I don't want to become as known as like a one trick pony. So. You don't you don't want to like do an album of Holy Diver covers. I you know I would almost uh, I've I've thought I've pondered it doing an album uh, completely of Holy Diver covers all in wildly varying genres. Yeah. Um. But but again, you know, I don't want to be I don't want to be too easily labeled. I want to expand beyond that. You could do Dio generally. I don't know, or you could just That's do true. like just sort of the the genre like eighties metal done in different. Um, you know styles. Like, do you know? Do you know the uh, Alex Skolnick, the guitar player for Testament? Well, you do you remember Testament at least? I'm, I'm I remember Testament. Yeah. Um. He when Testament broke up or he left or whatever, he went and learned to become a and and trained as a jazz musician. And he's a jazz guitar player now. And he put out a bunch of albums of like jazz guitar. And then he did a special album, you know, a few years back or whenever that was a co- it was a bunch of covers of '80s thrash metal done as a jazz combo it was awesome really yeah so right it was like there with david lee ross bluegrass <laughs> no um up there might i don't know Should, yeah is he back yet uh not not that oh, i can right. tell that's all right you know what that you know what your recording made me this is gonna be funny because you know here you are in iraq or I- iraq sorry i won't use the western imperialist language um, that you object to. While in Iraq, uh, Iraq, you take your your acoustic guitar. Did you take your guitar with you? No, no, no. I, I bought it's this really oh, okay. crappy cheap guitar here. So then you have that, and then you just like recorded that on like the microphone that you have now, basically. Yep. Cool. How'd you do the distortion? Was that like a Garage Band effect or something? Yeah, that was a Garage Band effect. It's actually pretty sweet. I um. I didn't have all the loops because I haven't updated them for a while. I finally did. It was one where, like, it took so long I had to leave my computer on, like, overnight to get them. But uh, <laughs> that was just one of the basic effects. But I actually really liked that. I was thinking that one's going to go in regular rotation of my various other songs. <laughs> but uh, um, but what it, it inspired me to, you know, make my own music. Because, you know, when we had the TPP, there was an incentive to do stuff. And... Of course, instead of actually making my own music with whatever I had laying around like you did admirably, I decided that I need to buy a new iPad. Uh, Have you seen well, the you demos? Have you seen the, the little video of the GarageBand on the new iPad 2? Uh, no, I'm out of the iPad loop. Oh, it's amazing. Like, they have drums and guitar and bass and everything and keyboards and you can actually like play them like right there on the on the thing. And I haven't I want to go and try it out and play with it. But like the drums are touch sensitive. Like it uses the accelerometer in the iPad to sense how hard you're hitting it. So like Yeah, but see those are kind of like I don't like I have a beat machine, but I just can't get around like, like that was one of the reasons I bought a drum machine is because I just can't I can't make music that way. Like I just can't there's something, and it's not like, you know, this kind of like, man, that's not real way to make music, man. But it's more just like, I can't, physically, it doesn't make sense to me, like, hitting keys. Like, I can never keep something going. Like, no. I have to be in. I'm the same way, but that's just it. See, I'm the same way. Like, I have a drum machine. I mean, and I used it a few times, and it was a pain in the butt, and it totally not a creative process, really, unless you're great at it, you know. And I have even a MIDI keyboard, and, like, you can do drum sounds with that, and I can never get it right. But this, it's like a drum set. Uh, you know, they like there's a drum set on the iPad, and you can, like, use all your fingers and, like, actually tap out beats and stuff. And then you can actually record them on the iPad. 
you know, and then mix them together. And you can use, like, create little melodies with the, with the piano and stuff. So, like, as a place, you know, or you could just sort of take the audio out and put it into your, your regular computer and, you know, record basic beats. That It's just a much more organic way of doing that than, like, programming, you know, uh, 16th notes into a little grid like you do on, like, a drum machine or something. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's I haven't followed much of the iPad developments because as we... I think even it was on one of these discussions once where I talked about how I just don't get the iPad. It's it's one of those technologies where if all of the many ones, I looked at it once and said, eh, that will never apply to me. So I've just filtered every iPad-related thing out of my consciousness. Um, so the iPad, for all intents and purposes, does not exist to me. I think it's definitely one of those things that right now people don't need. You know, it's one of those things where you you use it because you enjoy using it, not necessarily because you can do things on it that you can't do anything else. However, like this is actually this is actually the first thing where I thought this is a new way of this is a new input method. You know, you've got a full screen, you know, multi-touch gestures and all this stuff. And it's a kind of gimmicky, I think, when you're doing that to wheel around on a web browser. But when you've got like musical instruments and different regions of the screen are different sounds and you can bend and slide and move things around and it's touch sensitive. It, it becomes a input device to making music, for example, in a way that a mouse and keyboard, um, both, you know, QWERTY keyboard and, you know, keyboard, keyboard, like never could really do, you know, it's like, this is the thing. Like, that's why it hit me watching these like videos of people using GarageBand and listening to this stuff, people together, like, Holy crap, because that's always the weak link for me is like the drums and percussion and stuff is I can't, you know, I can I can play guitar and bass, but that's boring on its own. You got to have some beats. Mm-hmm. Oh, you need the beats. Yeah, I mean, it, it, again, like I'm, I'm certainly not convinced of this magical, fantastical iPad thing of which you speak. But I, while you were saying that, I was thinking there's some instruments that it would make sense because I was thinking like like a, a a pedal steel or something like that. Like, I could see how that could translate incredibly well to the iPad um, mm-hmm. to the point where it would be like, because that's what the actual instrument is like. Yeah, you yeah, know, you yeah. set it down and you rub your hand around on it. Um, <laughs> and so that one would actually make sense. God, I hope that's exactly where Arturo came into the conversation. Yes. yes. <laughs> that was yes. awesome. Uh, right as you say, you set it down and rub your hand on it, Arturo pops up. So uh, we're talking about the making music no. on the iPad oh. too. Uh, I should have made him guess, made shouldn't I? Yes, <laughs> what what we were talking about. Who has an iPad too? Oh, n- neither of us. We were just we were just talking about making music and how the new iPad has GarageBand on it, and it has like keyboards and drums, and it's all like touch sensitive, and it looks awesome. And I want one now so I can make music. Oh, cool. So, I mean, I don't know. Is this relevant? I'll say frankly, John, I'm a little I'm a little surprised that you actually don't have one, just because. If there was anyone I would know who has the the latest gizmo, but I, I don't. I always I, I'm not like that, man. My laptop is like five years old. I have a four year old iMac. I don't. I don't. I'm not a latest and greatest kind of guy. I'm cheap. Yeah, but it's just that like you actually know how to use those kind of things, or like you have it set up for your TV. Do you just you like you can actually do things with it? So I just always assume you're like on top of these things. Someday, someday when I'm when I'm rich and famous. I will buy the new. You know, it's just kind of like if you have a friend who listens to like a lot of fish or something, you assume <laughs> they know how to find drugs, right? Like maybe they don't. Maybe they don't do any drugs at all. But you just kind of are like, well, that guy knows where to find drugs or something. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's it's, true. it's a it's a 
well, it's a social marker. Like your computer ability uh, opens up so many other assumptions about you. I don't know if I want to if I want to go there. So I don't know if this discussion of making music on the iPad is really social improv worthy, but I think it could be. I mean, I just think it's what what I was telling I was with it. what I was telling uh, uh, Jesse Arturo is that. The thing that hit me with this is the iPad's cool. Like, you know, okay, great, a, a comfortable computer I can sit on the couch and use and browse the web and do what I was already doing on my laptop. But why do I need it, right? And watching this, it's like it sort of hit home with me that this is a – I mean, and this hit home a while ago. Like, I have an, I do have an iPod Touch. And my daughter, who's four years old, for the last – she basically took it over about a year ago. And she can pick the thing up and flip through the apps and totally knows how to work the thing. Uh, she can't even – fit her hand really comfortably on a mouse to use a real computer you know Mm -hmm. so like there is clearly it's been clear for a while there's something about this new input mechanism that's very different and very powerful but like watching someone make music on it like if you've tried to use like a drum machine program or something on a computer it's horrible you get like you know like a grid and you gotta turn switches and it's it's not intuitive and it's not sort of like this organic just make music you know and like you can do that when you've got a you know ten inch screen that is touch sensitive and has multi touch abilities where you can use multiple fingers on all over different regions of the screen and like you can slide stuff around and it has sort of touch. It's just uh, it's got it's, a different physicality to it. Yeah, exactly. Like it. And it's like wow, this is something that like I I could I could never do with the stuff I have now that an iPad two would let me do. You know, so like that's uh, that's cool. So, I mean, I guess if we want to try to make a larger point about that, um, do you think I, I editing know, um, social improv episodes is going to be a whole new experience so that you can like move tracks around with your fingers and, you know, see, actually, change. that's a good point. Like, could I, I mean, cause you can do multi-track editing. Like you can do eight track editing on the, on the iPad now, you know, and like some things that you do when you're editing audio now is just not intuitive, right? You have to get your mouse you know, take the mouse and like point on, you know, like say you want to do a fade or something, Yeah. you know, and you've got like these little, you know, uh, handles that appear on a timeline and you click them and you try to drag them around with your mouse, but your mouse gets, goes too far, or not far enough. And Yeah, that's very true. Awkward. Like there's also like segments that you're not sure you want to keep or get rid of. You know, like you want to put them somewhere and then you always put it over like another something that's going on in the, you know, track, you know, you yeah. erase so like it, the music or something. Yeah. When it comes to that sort of like vision, I mean, I mean, think about it. Audio editing in that form on a computer is bound to be a very short phase in the life of editing music. You know, I mean, think of a, a real soundboard and a real recording studio. There are knobs and sliders and there's this very physical feel to what you're doing. And then we went to the simulation of that where you're using a, you know, clumsy little mouse pointer and keyboard shortcuts and things like that as a replacement. And, you know, it's, you can do it, but it's very awkward. And then now it's like full circle again. You've got this large touchscreen interface where you can really move stuff around and drag stuff around in a much more, you know, intuitive way. Like, I mean, like, you know how you see, uh, you see like, I mean, like engineers when they're, when they're mixing audio engineers, when they're mixing something together, they like listen to the track and they're like, you know, bringing sliders up over here and make, tweaking this volume over here. And you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. You can't do that mm-hmm. in GarageBand now, like <laughs> on a Mac, on a regular, you know, you can't do that because you've got one clunky little mouse that is not that touch sensitive. And, you know, like a touch screen surface really opens up, really opens up the possibilities. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think these are the kind of things where that like might actually make 
things like the iPad or other various touchscreen interfaces relevant. Because like you said, like for browsing the web or something, <clears throat> I actually think an iPad would be more annoying than anything, or it's just like clearly a novelty. But <clears throat> in the in these kind of few instances, I, I can't really think of any other, and maybe that's, again, why I'm not really on board with the iPad phenomenon. But in this kind of instance, like it makes sense that a touchscreen interface would work so much better, and I could actually see... Like, when you were talking about making music or editing music on the fly, I could really see a future for that and these kind of things, but <clears throat> otherwise I'm still thoroughly in the novelty camp. Man, I remember in, like, 1984, 85, like, my parents always had computers because, you know, they're <clears throat> electrical engineers, and they would bring these computers from the university, like, look at this new uh, movable computer, you know, and it'd be, like, the size of a luggage thing. Like we, we my, my dad once brought in this, I think it was like movable computer. It was called that, and it was like it looked like a huge luggage, and you put it like on the desk, and like a huge desk, and like the first chunk of it comes out, and it's like a big screen. And um, this computer, it was really cool because it had a printer on top of it, and then it had a mouse, and that was the first time we'd had actually ever seen a mouse or used a mouse. And before it was all like, you know, we would like play on the kind of DOS uh, I don't know what you call it yeah. uh, and so that that was the interface that we had and so it was kind of a, uh, I'm going to have to pause for one second, sorry thanks um, <laughs> I'm not editing that out oh of course not, no, Sarah brought me coffee, she was really nice today um, oh. I know oh. she went to Starbucks kind of I know, I know <laughs> Anyway, um, we were just sh- so shocked by like this mouse idea. I mean, it seemed kind of absurd at first, and then but there was like a special program that you could use the mouse. Like you know, you didn't have anything like Windows yet, and we were just like, "Wow, this is incredible!" Like you can click on things and make these squares. I remember just being fascinated by the ability of making squares. I mean, albeit I was six at the time, but um, it, it was kind of like a a dramatic change. And I remember my parents just like, Oh yeah, this mouse thing is going to be the, the biggest thing, you know, and next we'll have the cat and it will be like a bigger <laughs> mouse or, you know, if only, if only. <laughs> oh man. I know my, my parents' uh, predictions didn't quite come out, but still, you know, it was a, uh, it was an impressive time. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's the same. I mean, you can see, uh, touchscreens, I think, on the same continuum, you know, where computers were something originally where, you know, you used like punch cards and you punched abstract things into the punch card, fed it through a machine and got results back in a similar format, you know. And then it became, there's like this text layer that we put over computers where, you know, you could interact by typing words and text would be returned to you and you could, you know, interact that way, which is again, like, another less abstract, more human way of interacting. And graphical interfaces with, you know, mice and windows and folders and these sort of nice metaphors from real life that we can apply to interacting with technology push that even further. And then now, you know, there's, I I think, you know, sort of actually being able to touch and interact with elements on a display in a very, you know, like, you know, hands-on sounds like silly, but in in a very immediate, intimate way. It's just the next step on the continuum to be. And I remember, like, my parents just saying, like, why do we even want Windows? I mean, this idea of Windows seemed absurd to them because it used way too much RAM, you know, and it was just, like, clunky and stuff like that. And, like, 
DOS prompt. Just type, you know, CDR, you know, CD when you want to change directories or look for what directory you want. Why are you being so lazy and just clicking on things? Um, but you know, <laughs> I mean, I guess some people do that, right? But, uh, definitely the Windows format seems to have worked uh, pretty well. No, I mean, like, I, I, I get that. I mean, I, I'm one of those people, right? I still, a lot of my computing takes place in a terminal window on my Mac, which is a plain text interface, and I do a lot in there. I write papers in such an interface because once you learn it, there's certain power and flexibility and sort of timelessness to that kind of interface. But um, uh, at the same time, I can hand my my four-year-old daughter, like I said, an iPad or an iPhone, and she can interact with it immediately as opposed to a huge learning curve. And there's certainly things like, uh, you know, drumming in a interactive, touch-sensitive, really natural way that you just, you can't do it. You couldn't do it with a with text. You can't do it with a mouse, and now you can finally do it. And that's, there's tons of potential for that. I mean, you know, if, if thinking about, if, if music isn't the only case you can think of, um, uh, you know, I mean, sort of think of, well, I mean, games are one obvious example. I mean, I don't know if games are a reason to buy an iPad or not, but the, um, well, you know, I mean, games are just one step towards learning something, right? So yeah. you have amazing games that give you the, you know, like, like driving games or something. I mean, have you guys seen the, the driving games they have for the iPad? It's amazing. You know, you just sort of no. like, you hold the iPad like a steering wheel. And of course, when you turn it, it turns the car, you know, um, oh, it's pretty sure. awesome. And you think about, well, like there are educational applications of technology like that, you know, and, and, and that's, that's a huge door of, you know, possibilities too. I have a low tech kind of comparison to this and maybe this will take it to a different direction. We don't want to go, but I've been the last couple of months. I've been trying to read a lot of qualitative methods books, you know, because as I'm working on my dissertation and I'm trying to figure out, like, okay, you know, I call myself a qualitative researcher, but what exactly does a method, you know, compose of? And of course, there's lots of debates about, well, you can't specify the method, or it becomes co-opted by quantitative methods, and you can't do this. And then there's like other methods books that give you a very like cookie cutter kind of format how to analyze data and i was looking through one of these books and it it had suggested this kind of um analogy of bins that like equality qualitative analysis is all about putting different themes and quotes into different bins and then rearranging the bins and um it had the suggestion of like you know go and go through your interviews and find these themes but cut out um, the first sentence of, of key quotes around a certain theme that you think are important and then put them on a table and you kind of disorganize them and then you put them out in this kind of a circular um, uh, arrangement where quotes in the center of the circle are core to the idea, quotes on the outside are peripheral and then you try to make subsystems uh, outside of the circle and then you pick one quote from each of those categories and you kind of construct a paper by going talking about the core and then talking about the peripheral I- of ideas and um, it seemed kind of really like monotonous and kind of silly and kind of third grade you know cutting out quotes and then like arranging them on your desk but man it really works really well so I did it this week and just the physicality of just seeing your data, like, 
on your table or desktop, you know, and arranging the quotes and then fig- finding out kind of relationships through the act of moving things around. It was like pretty um, um, alleviating of stress because with qualitative data, you just get overwhelmed with information and you kind of forget what exactly you're trying to write about or what the purpose is and what do you introduce first and what do you – like this was a nice way of just um, – bracketing stuff and and just like moving things around was uh really nice and like you know i use atlas ti and there's kind of like a a a window for doing that type of work but it's kind of really labor intensive just to figure out how to do it it's complicated and um i bring this up just because like wow this really low tech way of doing things you know it's really kind of cool actually no i I mean i i think that is actually a a great a great point like because you know like atlas ti tries to do stuff like that but it doesn't mm-hmm. work right yeah when you're dragging things around with the mouse but like for example um there have you guys heard of mind maps before like mind mapping software Mm-mm. i mean it's and they you know this has been around a while and i've seen it on you know regular pcs and macs before where you know you sort of like make a point in the middle and then you can draw a line and then add another thing and then another couple bubbles that branch off of that and then another bubble off the main branch and this sort of like expanding tree of information and then the idea is you can drag things around and reorganize it and then the idea is that you're you end up with this sort of visual representation of an outline as opposed to like an outline right right and it never really made sense to me but like for example i know a guy who uses it all the time on his ipad like that's how he takes notes you know and it makes a lot of sense when you have an, an iPad where you can zoom in and out of different regions and you can drag the different bullet points around. I mean, it's kind of what you're talking about doing. You know, right. it's just instead of notes you're taking, it's quotes from your field notes, you know. And because of the, you know, like the physicality of the way you interact with the iPad, it simulates a lot more that natural, um, you know, cutting and moving physical cards around kind of interface and then the advantages that you get from that. Um, yeah. As opposed to the sort of relatively cheap simulation of that that you get on a traditional computer. Yeah. Well, there's also this kind of parallel processing that you're doing. You're you're looking at multiple things at the same time, and you're not necessarily – you can focus on one thing, but that thing doesn't take up the entire view. You know, you don't over-focus on one thing, mm-hmm. but you see that thing in the context yeah. of other quotes. And I think that was, was – kind of useful and i think that's the problem with atlas ti for me because you know when you're trying to model what's going on in a particular theme or you know whatever you're doing like you you can't even see exactly what the little nodes are and then you have to click on the nodes and the nodes take over the entire window and you read that and you're like okay that's what that node is about then you minimize it and then like okay what is that node about and you read that node and you're like what was the first node about like you there's this like at least my been my experience of like wow this is very frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> Looks there, cool. <laughs> there are huge advantages to doing things like that on a computer. You know, I mean, it's easier to save, for example, you know, easier yeah. to make backups, easier to revisit ideas, easier to make sort of templates that you reuse again. But like, uh, I was re- I had to reorganize a paper of mine a few months ago and I printed the paper out and I spread it all out on the floor and looked at it that and rearranged stuff. Right. It's just yeah. easier to do that. And because when you're when you're like writing, you only get, you know, well, the height of your display that you can see at a time, you know. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. you can sort of zoom way out and you can't see anything, you know, and maybe you get like sort of an outline view that you can get. But that's not quite the same either, you you know, where you see the headers and maybe the first sentence or whatever. But, you know, uh, 
like the technology there hasn't caught up with the ability, you know, for writing hasn't caught up with the, the advantages of just printing it out and dragging different sections and parts around, you know? Um, but you know, maybe, maybe if you imagine a future where iPads are no longer 10, you know, where you have an entire desk that's basically an iPad, (laughs) you know, you've got a, you know, seven foot long by three inch, four inch deep desk. That's an entire surface and you can move and drag things around like, uh, you know, that changes things. And that's like science fiction. Well, they actually already, they already have the, like windows Uh, has a thing. Yeah, but it's not real. It's one of those things Microsoft always does. They come out with like a demo of something to they call it like the, I forget what they called it, but they made a big deal out of it a couple years ago. And as far as I know, they're either not shipping or they're like tens of thousands of dollars, you know? Um, sure. So, so like I mean, a coffee like, table not, thing. It's not that far yeah. off of a science fiction. No, it's not. No, it's not. I mean, like five years ago, it would have been. And that's what's interesting about it is that like, th- like through phones and little tablet computers were like, what was science fiction a few years ago is now inevitable. Like, oh, that'll happen and that'll be awesome. You know. But I think ultimately, I mean, it's kind of ironic that the whole thing we're arguing here is that the problem with technology is it doesn't yet ape totally simple pre-technology <laughs> methods of doing things, which we yeah, find exactly. completely superior. Like, yeah. I was actually just thinking to bring it back to music. Like, you see now there are, like, iPod turntable sets you can get for, like, DJs. You can yeah. put two iPods in them. Like, you put two records on a traditional DJ turntable set, and they have little wheels on them, which, of course, wouldn't have been possible with cassette or CDs or kind of things, right? Yeah. But, yeah, it's all it is is using this, like, ridiculously high technology to ape some of the most basic music playing technology we have. Well, but that's – okay, but that's that's true. But I don't think – I mean, that's kind of a cynical way to look at it, too. I mean, it's also true that at putting windows and folders and files into a graphical interface for computers was aping the physical world, too. But there's a lot oh, of things totally. we could do with that that we can't do – that we couldn't do with real physical paper and folders and, you know, and, and documents, right? So it works. So the more um, – you know, and and just like uh, there are things. I didn't like, mean to insult your beloved technology. <laughs> no, I don't mean it that way. I mean, I mean, like it's it's not necessarily like uh, you know why bother is the point. Like there are huge advantages to being able to do it with technology. And oh yeah, no, yeah, I wasn't. Yeah. I wasn't meaning to say like the technology is pointless. I, it's just one of those interesting dialectics, yeah. if you will, no, that like oh, we're nice. trying to make these major advances in technology to be able to ape setting pieces of paper on the floor, you know? No, I think I think you're right. I think that's actually an appropriate use of a dialectic because it, it expands yeah. opportunities, but it also, like, makes us more and more lazier and, and, and unable to do complex tax, t- uh, tasks. Because, like, it almost seems like you're right. Like, we're trying to simplify the platform so that it's easier to use and we don't have to think so much about the mundane things and we can spend more time on the creative things. I mean, like, you know, an Apple or a Mac is kind of geared or marketed towards, like, you know, the creative types. And, you know, it's like a a two-year-old could figure out how to use it. And, like, I guess the idea is that, like, oh, yeah, you don't have to worry about the specifics and you can just focus on your creativity and making your really cool albums and, you know, but, you know, or whatever you got to make. You know, you didn't hear my version of Holy Diver that kicked off this conversation. So you don't even understand how relevant this is. (laughs) <laughs> well, he will have because it'll be. I'm gonna, I'm gonna splice it in. I won't do the whole thing. Just, oh, like, I'm just right, gonna get right. a bit of the verse and the and the bridge because you nailed the bridge, man. 
Yeah, the, I was particularly happy with how the bridge came out. I, I had a different version that I lost that I think was better, but... Oh. I was impressed that we, when we did that podcast with Eric uh, a few months back, the whole science ethnography thing. Yeah, we got some I, comments. I was surprised by that, actually. I'm like, wow, that's kind of cool. Like, we actually have people listening to it. Well, I thought it was revealing that it was all that was anthropologists. Like, we don't yeah. have sociologists comment on what we do. That's true. But whenever that's... we've had anthropologists on, people comment. That is true. Sociologists are just a, online, man. I guess. I guess, yeah. They're working maybe, on their dissertation. Maybe so. we should be anthropology improv and just screw it. Oh, Forget man. Yeah. sociology. We did a little marketing we'll, research. We'll, we'll cross list on the anthropology pages. Maybe we could be the lazy anthropologist and there'd be no problem because we're not anthropologists, so it wouldn't hurt us <laughs> in any way. <laughs> it's true. Man, I still... You okay. know, actually, Jesse, you know, I was joking about making my own music. And I decided that if I do get around to actually doing it, I'm going to release them under the name The Lazy Sociologist. Oh, nice. That's, we should start a collaborative international band. Let's dude. do it. Like, uh, we'll send each other tracks back and forth and, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, because we could either collaborate on the songs or alternately do like a split EP. Like, we could both put in a couple songs. Yeah, like, like uh, Andre and Big Boy. Yeah, dude, we are, we pretty much are the Andre 3000 and Big Boy of sociology, <laughs> respectively. Which one are you, is what I want to know. Are you, are you the freak or the cool one? Which one <laughs> is the freak? <laughs> An outcast? Are you kidding? That's First the whole dynamic. All, they're there. both cool. Oh, I mean, but... cool, yeah, but I mean, like, you know, like, that's their whole thing. There's, like, you know, like, Andre's the sort of freak pop sensibilities kind of guy. And then Big Boy's the rapper, and that's the, that's what makes the that's what makes it work. That's it's, true. It's like I was uh, actually trying to think. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just to say it's just like in TPP. You know, we had the the sort of straight ahead, darker metal elements of the band, and then the more um, pop rock sensibility and melody, and that's what made the whole dynamic work, man. Yeah, I was gonna say we're actually more like Glenn Tipton and KK Downing or something. <laughs> you know, I don't know that Andre and Big Boy are really. <laughs> oh, I had a question for you guys since we're talking about music and we're pretty much done. But whatever happened to um, the Smashing Pumpkins? They're still a band. Is it just him that's still banned, or is it like? Uh, I think he. Yeah, actually, good point. I think it's just him. It's kind of always been. I mean, well, no, he has like, yeah, he has other musicians that play with him. Well, it's, yeah, it's just him. Yeah, but he, yeah. it's like My Guns and Ro- It's like is- it's like Guns and Roses is still yeah. a band because Axel pays a bunch of people. Yeah. To go on tour as Guns N' Roses. Oh, really? Is that what how that goes? Yeah, he's the only original music. It's like Billy Corgan. Uh, one of my favorite musical dick stories of all time was that the last band, the original lineup of Smashing Pumpkins, or the last album they released after it was recorded, he went back into the studio and re-recorded everybody else's part himself, and then released that album. <laughs> He's an inter- have you ever like, read an interview with him? And you wonder you wonder why the rest of the people in that band didn't particularly want to work with him anymore. Well, sometimes it's like that. Sometimes like a band is like one dude's thing, 
or one you know one one particular person's project you know like prince records everything on his albums and he's put yeah, together bands but i feel like but i feel like smashing pumpkins started out as like an actual band i don't think it was like billy oh, corgan yeah. and the smashing pumpkins was it? i don't know yeah, I remember watching that first that first video of theirs, you know, where he's like the ice cream man and stuff like that. Like that was back in the nineties and like that was a band because, you know, each like person had like a character in that video. And I remember watching the other videos and thinking that like, oh, it's just this one dude and his like minions to follow him. But dude, if he's like if he was like <laughs> re recording tracks because he can play them better, that's kind of a prick move. Uh, <laughs> Don't say do. it didn't occur to um, wait, would I say that out loud? So what I want to know, did you guys... No, I know there's still a band because they made... Did you guys hear about this? They, he, Billy Corgan on Twitter uh, made kind of... Got a lot of attention a few weeks ago because he said that their current bassist um, was actually the girl who was on the cover of Siamese Dream. Like their current... Really? He, yeah. What he said I didn't is... hear that. He said, he said their bassist told them, just told the band that she actually knew the photographer and was actually the person on the cover and many years later auditioned for the band and never told them because she was afraid that she couldn't be in the band then what well like it's it's like a radio station calling contest where like if you are related to a member of the station you can't win the prize or something it's totally made up by the way Uh, but it was an awesome story wasn't it it was hilarious he said that on twitter and then there's like all these news stories about how awesome is this that the person on the cover of siamese dream is actually in the band now how cool and then like uh the bass the bass player herself was like billy made that up (laughs) what i think is funnier is that there's apparently like a gender requirement for bassists that's true we like the ladies on the bass (laughs) um that's true the, well, the, the the funny comment I heard is that that if that were true, the only thing that would top it would be if the naked baby on the cover of Nevermind ended up being in Nirvana or something. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I just saw there was something I was reading, like one of those "Where Are They Now" kind of fluff articles, and that kid was one of those things because he's like he's like, like in his twenties now or something, which of course makes everyone feel old. You know? Oh, kidding. Does he still swim in pools oh. naked? Is that is he still doing that? He's got to cut that Maybe out. Maybe it was he turned eighteen because when did that album come out? Ninety four. Yeah. Ah uh, yeah. no, so earlier. Ninety or something. Was it ninety one? It was before. Uh, yeah, ninety one, ninety two. Okay. Something so yeah, like that. Maybe yeah. Because Kurt Cobain. Because oh, yeah, Kurt Cobain killed himself. Yeah. Yeah. So. So yeah, I think it was ninety one. Yeah. Speaking That's of nineties music, on um, you know the the Onion, like what do they call it? Like the Onion AV section, like the it's AV online. Club. Yeah, AV Club. They have a there's a long That's series. A very devoted AV Club reader. Then then you might have seen this. There's like a long like ten part series they just finished. Whatever publishing. happens, alternative. Yeah, edition. yeah. Did yeah. you read any yeah, of it? Oh yeah, I read it all. Yeah, very entertaining stuff. There was yeah, one you might really like. They did a couple of years back. This Noel Murray, who's like their senior music writer, did this one called Popless, where for a year he listened to no new music and went through his entire music catalog alphabetically and listened to everything he owned and wrote about it. And of course, like he's a music reviewer, so he owned you know like hundreds of thousands of albums. Like it was it was pretty cool. We have a station Sorry, here in Sacramento. Well, I was just going to say we have a station here in Sacramento. They're not called oldies, but they have this like classic 
title, or I don't know what their actual title is, but they just play 90s music, and they have um, the woman from uh, Snapple, that Snapple lady, as like a DJ. And she's like, remember when Snapple was cool? And uh, they just played Nirvana and Pearl Jam and kind of all like 94, 95 hits. And I'm like, yeah, it's come. This is like classic rock to some people, you know? (laughs) I cannot believe how sad and pathetic the state of contemporary like rock music is you know like when i like the classic rock station in kansas city it's been the classic rock station forever right so the the same classic rock station i listened to when i was a little kid and they played like kansas and stuff <laughs> now classic rock is like or is like metallica like black album you know it's pathetic and then like if you listen to the current rock it all sounds it, it all sounds like either the black album or nickelback like everything since about the mid 90s with with rock music has just become a parody of itself. It's a totally dead genre. It's so depressing. Oh, Grandpa John, do you, oh, do you disagree? Sounds, no, I don't disagree at all. It it's, just it sounds. Uh, yeah, I, you're totally right. It's just it's funny when you say it loud. Oh, you know, it's it not that. I, I mean, it's not an old person thing because I think there's ex- there's exciting music going on. Like there's creative music stuff going on. Oh, it's yeah. just not happening. Rock in, is clearly a dead it's genre. It's not happening in rock, and it's pathetic. Dormant genre, I, I prefer to hope. Oh, dormant, totally. It'll totally come back. But there's been nothing. I mean, if you look at, like, I was just watching this documentary on, um, you know, Dunlop makes the crybaby wah wah pedal, and to celebrate like whatever anniversary, I don't even know what it was. They made a documentary. You can watch it online for free. Like, search for like, it's like crybabydoc.com or something documentary.com, and it's like an hour long movie about the crybaby wah wah pedal. It's awesome. And uh, it made me want to buy one. <laughs> Big surprise. Um, but, like, they're documenting music, sort of, and the Wawa's role in it, of course, from, like, the early 60s through, like, the 80s. And it's, like, so much awesome innovation happened in rock music and guitar playing between, like, early, you know, 50s, 60s and 1984, basically. And since then, I mean, like, there have been great guitarists and, and good music since then, but in terms of, like, really revolutionizing anything... Nothing. Interesting. Yeah, it's true. You know. Though you almost kind of wonder if, because I was reading some something similar, but not really, that was ruminating about how, like, if you look on the pop charts, there's, like, no rock music on the pop charts. It's, like, all, it's all either hip-hop, R&B, or, like, that sort of, like, four-on-the-floor club beat-type yeah. pop music. And there's, like, not even really, like, pop rock music anymore so i mean that might be part of the story and that like if you're you know some schmo dreaming of being famous like you're not gonna form a garage band and try to do it it's the stupidest way to try to get famous i I think i think it's that rock i mean rock has just become very conservative too where like there's a there's an ideal type of what rock music should sound like or whatever subgenre of rock you want to say you do and you don't deviate from it there's no like creativity you know like uh i don't know like like i mentioned a few we're not recording this are are we done is this i, I guess so yeah is this just so. BSing? i think we were done i don't know this actually kind of makes a discussion well i can keep it in do you want me to keep it in okay sure so like like you know like i've been listening to this is this is weird for me but like i mentioned i bought kanye west cd because like everyone was talking about how awesome it was right and it was you know most hyped album of the year it was like four bucks on amazon so i bought it so i've been listening to like getting into like rap and hip-hop and stuff which i never thought i would like because my idea of rap which was what it was when i was growing up but like there's you know like 
there's way more creativity and blending of musical genres and just being plain out, plain flat out weird uh, going on in rap right now than, and then you compare that to rock and it's just completely, completely boring and predictable and conservative. Oh, totally. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's sad. <laughs> you know, there was this, um, a few weeks back on NPR, there were just all these hip hop stories going on. Um, and it was kind of interesting on multiple levels. One, it was just, it was weird to have, like, it's clearly some effort by NPR to sound a little bit more urban, you know, so they had, like, you know, hired some Dude, kids. NPR is urban. <laughs> when I think of NPR, man, I think of Brothers in the Hood banging it out their trunks. So, so there was, like, a story about, like, apparently a lot of the hip-hop um, classics or the hits come out of strip clubs. And so, like, you know... Um, promoters will work with strip clubs to play their hits and hoping that like that will be the next one that will like hit the radio waves and so people who like go to strip clubs and you know listen to it and then they'll talk to their friends about it and so NPR did these stories about like hanging out at strip clubs and what's the next hip-hop song and it was just like huh this is kind of an interesting NPR story um wow but there was a, there was one story where I guess there's a rap genre where the rappers don't even use words anymore, but they just grunt. And uh, the NPR <laughs> reporter was saying how this like represents this like pre-verbal <laughs> form of expression, and it's like actually singing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like it's it's making a subtle statement. It's going back to this like raw emotions, and they played it, and it's like. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like these dudes like just saying like yeah oh yeah and just five minutes of that and, they're like uh, the slipknot of rap or something <laughs> hey, hey, and the reporter don't, don't i mean talk shit about slipknot that's fighting words iowa baby <laughs> yeah but like the reporter was trying to give some kind of like credence to it. it's like well you know it's uh it's a form of expression, you know, albeit a little bit primitive, but it's, you know, interesting, you know, very urban. Primitive. Urban. Yeah. Um, so it was uh, quite bizarre. I don't know what the point I was trying to make, but besides just saying that, like, yeah, there's some creative out things going on in rap. Some of it is kind of bizarre, um, but I'll, I'll keep listening to NPR and see what's coming up next in the rap world. I always trust NPR for my yeah. next hit of the underground hip-hop world. Like, but, I feel I mean, they did that for a few but, weeks. But that's but kind of the stop. point John was making, though, right? Like, there's not really... I mean, and some of that... I mean, like, I'm guessing the guttural utterance of rap is not going to make it to, like, mainstream radio. But, like, you know, nobody's even trying that rock music. Like, nobody's trying strange new directions a la the Plastic Ono band or crap like that, you know? The Mothers of Invention, I would probably be a better example maybe oh i have a rant real quick this will just take three minutes but did you guys listen to that uh conservative um uh attack on npr the kind of prank that they did with pretending to be the brothers of the muslim brotherhood uh trying to donate money to npr and they released this no i did not hear of this so it came out on tuesday and basically it's that same group that like you know goes to um plant Plant, uh, yeah. Parenthood and, uh, Plant you know, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. And that right bar has been yeah. arrested and done all that stuff, yeah. So they, um, they pretend that they're from, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood and they organize a meeting with NPR executives about donating money and they want to have a lunch and discuss. Actual, like, Arab people or actual Muslims? I think so. 
I think so. Um, and you see the wow. video, they go to a nice restaurant and they talk to the president or the CEO and then, um, the, like the executive of like donations and stuff like that. And you watch the video and, you know, there's all these things about like, listen to the NPR president, you know, talk about how he thinks, um, the tea bag or the tea, tea party, uh, Group is racist and, and backwards, and hear how he hates the you know hates the U.S. government. And you watch the video, and uh, clearly enough, like they try to like get the NPR executives to say things, but they don't. They always back back off, you know. And and like there's a point where they're like, yeah, we always thought NPR was national Palestine radio because you guys always give this pro, pro Jew thing. And the guy goes, well, you know, we like to represent all sides. So, of course, some of the things you're going to say might offend you and some of the things you're going to say uh, you might approve of. You know, there's people in this country who don't want to hear anything about Muslims, but we're going to report that either way. And we have, you know, we have um, contributors who are kind of pro-Israeli and sometimes they really like what we say and sometimes they don't. And, you know, you're going to give us money, but we're not going to be pro-Muslim all the time either. I mean, I'm sure there's radio stations that you can give money to, but we're not going to do that. And, like, there's nothing wrong with that statement. In fact, I think that's, like, exactly what a news organization should say to its funders. And then they start start asking about the Tea Party, and then they go, well, it's just kind of like fundamentalist Christian group. Well, I wouldn't even call them Christians. I mean, they're not really Christians in that sense. They're just taking up the term Christianity and are kind of making it to this kind of religious um, campaign in the U.S. and it's totally polarizing the um, debate. And, you know, I mean, at its core, it's like these racist people making these, like, xenophobic comments about Muslims. Um, And uh, so they they go, aha, we have this NPR executive saying this thing. And then they ask him about federal funding, and he goes, well... Honestly, it's a big headache because we always get attacked by conservatives. It's only 10% of our funding, and I don't want to take it. But if we didn't take it, a bunch of our smaller stations would close up. And, you know, like NPR would still function, but we wouldn't be able to, like, serve these small communities. And so that's, like, the second thing. And um, so they release it as claiming that, like, oh, here's the NPR executive saying all these horrible things. But if you watch the video, I don't think he says anything that's, like – Outrageous, he says. One, we're a news organization. Two, we don't like the Tea Party because they tend to paint us a particular way. And three, yeah, we don't like federal funding because it gives us a headache, but we need it because we subsidize some of our smaller stations. And the NPR board asked these two executives to resign. Um, oh yeah, well, because that's what it is nowadays. Like any, I mean, as soon as there's a whiff of controversy, you have to, you know, it's just like that. Who was the Sherrod woman, you know, who said something completely like uplifting and good and something you'd expect someone in her position to say that was taken out of context was fired within hours, you know? Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm surprised they even released the whole video, though, because that was the thing with the Planned Parenthood thing. They like chopped up the video and edited it to make them say what they wanted them to say, right? Yeah. I'm surprised I mean, they didn't just like. delightful discussion with Peter Dreyer. That's right. On on office hours, you should go listen to the interview with Peter We talk about this a lot. But like, I'm surprised they didn't just edit it so that it was like we have some pro-Israeli donors, like, and cut out the rest of it. You know, like, I'm, 
I'm surprised. Yeah, there's a heavily edited, like, two-minute version of it where they're, like, showing what he's saying in text across the screen. But even that version is like, okay, sounds like he's saying yeah. he wants to give a balanced perspective on the Palestinian issue. You know, like, oh, huh, no. crazy. Yeah, this is, this is like, the, the situation for any sort of – I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call NPR – Actually, you could say in today's political climate, NPR is progressive or liberal purely because of what they do, right? I mean, if yeah. any sort of if serving yeah. any sort of public good is is labeled as leftist, then, say, then fine. That's what purely they are. because they they acknowledge that Palestinians have a right to be alive, like yeah. puts them pretty far left on the spectrum of American media. But that's what they do. You know, you you cave, you fire the people because you're just petrified of the right. You know. Yeah. I mean, like, even in this, if you watch the 11-minute video, there's a point where the guy goes, you know, there's a real anti-intellectualism in the U.S. right now that equates anything related to, like, university research. That's seen as being liberal, you know. So, like, un- research coming out of universities that talk about social issues are always going to be kind of coded as, like, liberal democratic things, and that's not necessarily the case. So do I think that, like, people that listen to NPR are going to be more intelligent because we cover that stuff? Yes. Does that make them liberal? Some people would say that does make them liberal, but I don't think that's what being a liberal is necessarily, but it's being equated as such. And I think, I don't know, maybe because I am an academic, that seems like a reasonable thing to say, you know, like, oh yeah, you know, you do research, doesn't make well, you a... Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I've been thinking about the same thing a lot in, in sort of an international comparative con, uh, perspective, if you will. Uh, but I've been reading the... NGO I'm, I'm loosely affiliated with here, one of the projects they did was called the Iraq History Project, which was essentially like, essentially a truth-telling commission, right? They yeah. they have two books they produced of it, like uh, during Saddam's time and post-Saddam time up to now, where they just went around the country and interviewed people who have, you know, been imprisoned, tortured, had family members killed, suffered political violence and all those kind of things. And one of the things that's been the most consistent about the post-invasion one is how, like, a lot of women, I mean, women actually had a fair amount of rights under Saddam, not because he was some progressive feminist, but because he recognized the value of, of using all groups against each other. And, and so, there, it, you know, especially for, for compared to some countries in this region, women had it pretty well here. Um, but, but post-invasion, you know, there was a lot of these Islamist groups or, or super hardline groups that came out. And so I, I was thinking it's very com- com- comparable, comparable, is what I was looking for. Um, because, like, a lot of women have taken to wearing the hijab, you know, covering themselves. Like, even non-Muslim women, like a lot of Christian women started doing it just because it's, you know, there are places where women were getting killed for not doing it, right? And it's this kind of thing where, like, in a lot of these situations, because, like, the hardline conservatives, be they Tea Partiers or Islamists, are so vociferous and, like, often violent in both cases that you just kind of have to cave to them for the sake of like a normal working order and like peaceably going about your business. And obviously it's more extreme in this sense, in this, this particular case. Right. But so you have all of these women who, you know, the hijab has nothing to do with their religion or their beliefs, but, but adopting it just so they can like walk around on harassed, just the same way NPR like asked these executives who, said as far as this is the first I've heard of it, but as far as I can tell from you, very non-controversial, like basic things, just ask them to resign rather than stick by them, even though they did nothing wrong, because it's just, 
Otherwise, they're going to have to go through this whole huge fight. Well, you know, like the next day I was listening to um, conservative radio, as I do, and they were talking about this story, how, you know, these NPR executives quit. And what do they say? It's like, well, we're not done yet. We won't quit until all of them are fired. We won't quit until, you know, NPR goes out of business. And uh, I'm like, do you think making these ridiculous concessions, (laughs) you know, is like going to get them to stop making these attacks? I mean – I mean, I see what you're saying. Like, you're saying that, like, within the context of the U.S., like, NPR has to, like, pretend like this is a really outrageous thing. But I think it's, like, you know, kind of fundamentally... Oh, no, no, no. No, I wasn't saying, like, that they should or do that, but it's just, like, it's the easiest way to deal with it. Like, NPR isn't prepared to, like, go to bat for these guys, even though they probably should, based on what you've told me. Um, But it's just sort of like you... Conceded, and I think you know. I was gonna. I would say, like, a fundamental problem of these is that they don't recognize that, like you said, these groups. Their goal is NPR doesn't exist. So there's not like a middle ground where you could be like, okay, well, how about we be a little bit more conservative, and then it'll be okay, right? No, no, no. We're not done until you don't exist anymore. Um, but again, like you know, it's just far easier to cave than it is to constantly fight these battles. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean there was there was actually an interesting story on I think Planet Money, their economics show on NPR the following day, and saying what's the economics of of this like position of the board to like back down? And it turns out that the board, the executive board at NPR, consists primarily of representatives from these small stations. I guess they have more power. Um, the way the structure is set up so that you know the weak stations have representation. Well, the weak stations are really dependent on federal funding, and it's pretty well known that if without federal funding, they wouldn't exist. NPR would, but not these small affiliates. And so like this show is saying basically that the board is always going to back down any time discussion of cutting federal funding is brought up. And so like the board will always be inherently weak to calls um, against its public funding. And, you know, it was, just, it was kind of an interesting show that they were like, oh, what's going on with NPR? Well, we thought we'd hire this, you know, um, we'd ask somebody outside of NPR to tell us what's going on. And this guy's like, yeah, the problem is that you have a really weak board orientated towards, like, a you know, weakness. <laughs> Sorry. The weak not board right. of weakness. <laughs> the weak <laughs> board of weakness is weak again. No, but I, I think uh, – That is like – that is a perfect explanation of American liberalism right there, <laughs> the board of weakness. Yeah. So uh, – Oh, before the weak board of weakness, I had a point. <laughs> yeah, sorry. That's <laughs> all right. It was awesome. Sorry, that was. I mean, we needed an episode title, title, so it's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, oh, oh, it was this. It was, this is just another example too of the misguided anti-government um, mission of of the right wing too. Is that look who's? I mean, let's say no federal funding of NPR goes through. Who's that going to affect? Small local mm-hmm. radio stations. Exactly. It's not. It's not going to affect the vast government, you know, uh, Washington conspiracy to uh, brainwash everyone through a national public socialized radio. It's going to be some small local radio station that's going to get closed. Just like you know, all the the places that have the the most, the highest ratio of incoming government aid versus outgoing taxes are all red, red parts of the country that are anti-government, and they're the ones who are getting the most out of it. You know, there's just this like. That's like a strain that runs through all of, you know, like all the, all the stuff, you know? Yeah. 
No, it was interesting. This professor that was on Planet Money was saying, you know, NPR should really just drop the money because really we don't need the affiliate station. You guys don't need the affiliate stations anymore. You have the internet. You know, all of your shows are streaming that, you know, these little localities could access it. So I would say you guys should just drop 10%, close those stations, and then just become an independent organization. But I think there's, you would lose this point that there's this public good being served. <laughs> By having like some kind of like nationalized news agency, you know, that's yeah, Yeah. you can still call it NPR. I mean, it'd still be public radio. I mean, there's I don't know. Go ahead, Jess. Sorry, I was gonna say though, to bring back to John's point, I was just trying to find this online. I wanted to jump in a moment ago, but there was a study, uh, fairly recently done by Suzanne Mettler of Cornell University, I believe she's an economist. Uh, but it, it was this big nationally representative survey that found out. The majority of people will report that they don't get any government benefits, um, despite the fact that they do. Like, a majority of people who get home mortgage interest deductions, a majority of people with federal student loans, um, a majority of Social Security recipients, a majority of unemployment recipients, like, on and on, will say they get absolutely no government benefits despite the fact they're all getting very clear and obvious government. Yeah, benefits. not to mention the fact that they and have roads like and curbs and schools. Oh, yeah, I mean, not even, like, the, the, the millions of those sort of basic things, but, like, direct, yeah. they get a check from the government every so often, you know? Um, we'll still say, like, oh, I don't get any government benefits because one of the most brilliant things of these, like, 30 years of right-wing anti-tax like activism has made it so that government benefits apparently only go to unwed inner city drug abusing teen moms, you know, like end point. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm just saying if they do cut funding, I'm going to like make these signs, like get your hands off my public radio or something like that, you know, (laughs) against, uh, these cuts. I mean, seriously, dude. I mean, I'll be really pissed off if like NPR didn't exist. I hate to say it, but I, you know, I can't listen to conservative radio all the time. You know, like there's got to be a little bit of a. Balance. <laughs> I can't believe you can listen to it at all. <laughs> I, I mean, I, you know, I, I have to say, like, you know, in the gym or washing dishes, but like in between, you know, like I can't listen to it in the car or you know. I try to. I try to not be like a. Like like close. I like to think of myself at least as fairly open to hearing arguments, but I just don't hear conservative talk radio as being about making arguments. It's not about making arguments at all. You know, um, it's about uh, expressing forcefully an identity and an ideology that goes with it that is actively against many of the things that I believe in and stand for. So like, I can't. I'm not going to listen to that. I'll listen to arguments about whether or not. You know, it, it, um, increasing state funding is is necessarily the right approach in whatever situation, or whether or not lowering taxes in certain cases may actually be a good thing to do. Like, you know, I'll listen to arguments, but I don't hear that. Whenever I've listened to conservative talk radio or conservative cable radio or c- cable television, it's not about arguments. So I don't even know how you can stand it. To me, it just makes my my blood boil. I love my country. Yeah, and, what can I say? I just I love the U.S. <laughs> I know. And like me, another, unlike but another, me. <laughs> another really good example of that I just saw recently too. Of course, this was on your crazy radical left wing radio, but Amy Goodman was interviewing Naomi Klein. Of course, she and was. Were talking, <laughs> exactly. I know. That's it, it, in other news. The sun rose and set that day. <laughs> um, but 
they were talking about climate change. And it was amazing because if you look at surveys, like in the year 2000, like 71% of Americans apparently in whatever, I think it was like a Harris poll, believed that climate change was real and human beings were responsible for it. And within two years, that number was down to like 40%. Because in that time span, climate change had gone from being like a scientifically proven fact to an ideology, right? So if you're a left-winger, you believe in climate change. If you're a right-winger, you don't believe in climate change. It, it, so it went from being like a scientific fact, which I would point out it still is, to instead being like an identity thing, like, you know, it, it, it's like a, abortion, right? There's, there's no sort of like, I mean, there might be some sort of scientific consensus about it, but essentially it's like an opinion, right? Like you yeah. either believe abortion is, should be a right or you believe abortion is wrong, you know? Climate change has become that. So despite the fact that all scientific evidence says it's real, it, it, it doesn't matter anymore. Now climate change is an opinion. I, th- I mean, I think that's always been the case. Like, at any time period, you can find issues that are contentious, that there is a fact of the matter about them, and people's opinions and what they think uh, often just it's purely a matter of ideological convenience, right? The question is, like, is that getting worse? Like, today, in today's um, political culture, is it is it so bad that the number of issues that are like that have increased, and the impossibility of talking to people across those has just gotten so constrained, you know, like that's, that's the word. I mean, obviously, you know, you, you go back to the sixties and ask people, uh, is the United States doing well in Vietnam? Right. I mean, I'm sure you'd find a party partisan divide on their evaluation of that or something, you know, or, um, uh, was the civil rights act a, a helpful thing for, you know, <laughs> American society, right. You, you know, you can always point to examples of that, but it feels like right now there's so little space to get around, you know, to, to actually talk about climate change. And when you try to create a space to talk sure. about climate change and the fact of the matter, just doing that is labeled leftist and, and you know, yeah. liberal. But I was more getting at, like, your point, because, like, again, there are things like now, historically, we look back and we say, of course, you know, you're required by law, essentially, to say the Civil Rights Act was a good thing, even if deep down, as I suspect, many right-wingers don't think it was a good thing. Um, but, but essentially, right, that's still opinion, you know what I mean? But it, well, yeah. what gets me are the things, yeah. but what gets me are the things like climate change that it's, it's not your opinion, dude. That's like, does the earth revolve around the sun? <laughs> that's not like, well, well, I don't think so because America is awesome. Like that's <laughs> a fact of, of the existence that that happens right but how, that's but not here, opinion but know? how do you, how do you know that though jesse i mean i'm i'm serious i mean i don't i'm not this isn't like just a rhetorical question though how do you know that that's that that's a fact that's that's indisputable how do you know that like personally can you prove it can you look outside and say ah i feel global no you can't so like you have to trust experts and you have to trust in the apparatus of science that has evolved over, you know, uh, the last few hundreds of years to measure and control and predict what's going on in the world to produce a coherent understanding of the way things are and have explanations for those things, you have to have a certain trust in that. And if you have completely ruled all those institutions as being illegitimate and um, untrustworthy, how do you know that that uh, 
you know, global warming is really the case. You don't. How do you know that whatever explanation for the economic crisis you heard on NPR, you know, by some smug Princeton economist, how do you know that's true? If you can't trust those institutions and the, and if you don't trust the rules of the game that those experts are playing, right? Like, that's the problem. That's it's true. like, these aren't, ma- these yeah. aren't, I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, I think it they just fundamentally, really back to Arturo's point, right? That they have successfully made, like, book learning, uh, <laughs> inherently liberal i mean it's kind of it's like that you know old stephen colbert quote that gets thrown around that it's like the problem with facts is they have a well-known liberal bias right and i mean you know i would like to believe that's true but essentially like the right recognized that and instead of you know finding a better argument instead decided that facts are irrelevant and have been pretty successful in that i mean i the only i mean i agree but i would say it's not the right has decided that. I think there are leaders um, in the right wing, powerful political moneyed interests, if you will, that understand this and have manipulated people into believing what they want them to believe and dis- not trusting institutions and practices and, and facts that are trustworthy and instead relying on and trusting other things. Like, I don't think, you know, Joe Republican um, next door to me I'm just kidding. I don't have Joe Republican next to me. Um, I, I don't think, I don't think they think of it that way. Like, I think if they if they heard you saying that, be like, oh, but you're you're BS. Look at all the evidence that uh, you know these scientists are just corrupt and making stuff up to advance their careers, and you know, they like I think they believe it. Like, I, I don't yeah. think they think of it that way. I think that is the case, though. You know, I, I don't know. It's just I, I don't know. I think they yeah, John. I, it's just. In case you're unfamiliar with our roles in this podcast, mine is is not to bring nuance into the discussion. <laughs> well, I was going to say both of you guys are right and wrong at the same time. Oh God, that's Arturo's <laughs> role. <laughs> say what? No, because I think I think Jesse is right. I, I think what they actually do is they they find one scientist out of twenty who says climate change is debatable, Yes, that there's no hard evidence. Yes. And then they portray as though it's a debate in the scientific community. Yes, Like this minority view actually represents 50% and this is ongoing debate. And so it's like – and that's what kind of what the Glenn Beck University thing is as well. It's like, yeah, there's academics who say that America is great, but unfortunately they don't get tenured in this yeah. socialistic – system of where it punishes people for being patriotic i'm sorry that's how it is like that's that's the kind of vision yeah, there. So, no this so. isn't this doesn't contradict what i was saying i'm just saying those are what the, there are there are thought and opinion leaders that you're talking about like glenn beck and, and stuff that do this but then i think that there are people who just genuinely believe it you know and i so i mean i think it's just important to keep that in mind well i think well, I think it's just that they it resonates with them. It's like, guess what? Like, yeah. you might have not gone to school, or maybe you did and you didn't listen. But it turns out that all those academics um, were wrong, and what you've believed all along is correct because it's the oh, simplified it's, version. Don't do the whole "you might not have gone to school" <laughs> bit. It's not that. I mean, there are very there are educated people. No, they're not. No, there are very educated, <laughs> wealthy people. Um, you know, physicians and lawyers and CEOs that are driving this whole thing that believe yeah, it, believe it with all their heart. I'm sure it's not about lack of education. It's just about where you direct your um, intelligence and uh, intellectual curiosity and where you conveniently believe what people tell you because it sort of supports what you want to do anyway. Yes. 
Yeah, but I mean, like, I'm not saying that they're less intelligent. I, I mean, I, I, I think there's they make some value. Yes, you are, Arturo. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> I think they yeah, make some value. Arturo, I would point out, Arturo, I would point out, you are the uh, snobby West Coast <laughs> elitist currently sipping a latte discussing NPR. Yeah. So uh, yeah. maybe yeah. you don't talk to us about the comic. <laughs> I'm just saying I listen to a conservative radio, man. I got my I got my street cred. See, I know The Wire and I know Bill O'Reilly. So I, I know we kind of went way beyond what we wanted to do. I don't know if we can save it for another episode or... Yeah, we'll just do this all at once. The only thing I can't remember is there was a window where we were... I thought we were done and then mm-hmm. we, we just kept going. Do you guys remember... Is there anything I should cut out of that or should I just leave it all in there? I swore quite a bit during that period. Yeah, um, I felt like an hour ago <laughs> is when we actually were yeah. thinking about stopping. Yeah, like 40 minutes in, we were like, oh, cool, perfect, 40 minutes, we're done. There was a whole discussion about the phone number and I think we can cut that out for right now and we can just pimp it next time. Phone number? What phone number are you talking about? Uh, the phone number of our podcast, the 1-800 number. Yeah, we don't want that in there. Right. Yeah. But we do need to put that in the end. Like right like, now. No. See, on. we'll just have to do it next time at the very beginning. We've got to remember next one we start by asking about the phone. Why can't we just say it right now? And when you cut to like the end transition music, just put that over the end transition music. Well, because see, I was already going to cut like five minutes ago, and then I'm going to have to do another cut for that. I'm not Arturo, oh, man. Uh, okay, so what do you want to say? Arturo. All right, what do you want to say? <clears throat> Intrigued? Thoughtful? Join the conversation. Call us in at Context... Whatever. Oh, we're not even Context. See, we're not even... You can't you know, say that. Along. You can't say that. That's... We'll get in trouble. Right. Intrigued? Bemused? Angered? Join the conversation. Call in the Sociological Improv Hotline at... You don't even know what it is, do you? No, I don't know what it is. <laughs> this is why we don't do Actually, it. Actually, that, that's a great audio clip right there. <laughs> Cut it with me saying that. I don't know what it is. All right, are you ready? And... Are you ready? Uh, hey, Jesse, you're going to kick yourself when you when you hear what it was. 612-424-AGIL. Oh, right. uh, that's right. That's right. I mean, the 424 okay, part. Some... I mean, admittedly, I had to look up the 424 part. That was, like a... yeah, that was what was tripping me up. Otherwise, I would have So call 612-424-AGIL and leave us a message. And just pretend I didn't. Pretend I didn't just do that. Anyway.